Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Deal Flow Show. I am JP Maroney, your host. My host for this uh, co-host for this episode is Paul Nicolini, and uh, we've got a very special guest. You know, all of our guests are very special, but I'm really excited about our guest that we have on today's show because Harbor City has been diving into the broker-dealer community, and there's an organization that sits very squarely within that whole community, and I've learned a little bit more about it, but I'm really excited and have my own set of curiosity questions that I want to ask Roger today. So our guest for today's show is Roger Wadsworth. He's the National Director of the National Due Diligence Alliance, and uh, we're going to get him to tell us a little bit more about the organization here in just a few minutes. But I'm going to go back a little bit because, Roger, I think you've probably been around the business for a few years and have some stories to tell and that sort of thing. Let's jump in and find out a little bit about you and how you got started in this industry. Well, I started uh, a degree in finance from the University of Houston back uh, a long time ago. I won't say how long. And have been in the securities and real estate business my entire career. And um, uh, got involved with the um, National Due Diligence Alliance as one of the founders a group of broker dealers uh, attended other conferences years ago. And we sat around and said, this is helpful to us, but we want to uh, focus more on the actual due diligence process of selecting products for broker dealers. Uh, so we went to the uh, folks that we were currently visiting with in their conferences and suggested a change in format and they pretty much liked the way it was which while it had value is more marketing oriented. Um, marketing is fine, but if you don't have a selling agreement between a product sponsor and a broker dealer or a advisory firm, uh, nothing can happen. So we wanted to focus on the, um, the due diligence portion of it. So we formed the corporation uh, in 2002. Uh, we specifically made it a nonprofit and named ourselves a due diligence organization, uh, specifically to, to focus on that that conversation between the principals in a alternative investment marketing transaction, um, and that's how we got to uh, the National Due Diligence Alliance uh, 18 years ago. Very interesting. So back then, Roger, 2002, was this was this just for alternative investments? Yes, it was then and, and always has been. We focus on alternatives. We, you know, we don't get involved with, uh, you know, stocks, bonds and mutual funds and that sort of thing with sponsors. Our broker dealers and advisors are looking for alternative investments, which is a huge category. But that's what they're looking for. And that's what we focus on. Where do you see this alternatives category right now and then going forward? I mean, my opinion is we see a lot of growth and many new different types of products, but I'd love to have your opinion on that in terms of based on your background as well and your exposure to so many opportunities. Well, since our inception, alternatives have been a very robust uh, category of, of capital formation. Uh, there's been a lot of changes over the years. Um, uh, you know, currently, uh, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, issues that the industry had to deal with, you know, currently our sponsors are dealing with COVID and, you know, what that means to them with their business plans and what that means to 
us and, and folks that put on face-to-face -face, uh, conferences. So we had to cancel our July conference because of COVID. We have one coming up in November, but we normally have one in March, July, and November of each year. And the last one we did March of this year was our 52nd conference since we started. And the, the, the changes now, or the, the, the stressors now are uh, sponsors looking at, you know, how has the COVID experience affected our business plan? How has it affected the way we raise money and what we raise money for? And it falls into, I think, pretty much two categories. One group of the folks that say, you know, we have an existing fund of real estate or oil and gas assets or whatever it happens to be. And, and we're evaluating how COVID and the business uh, impact of that is affecting our, uh, our assets under management and our funds. And another group, uh, it may overlap, are looking at the situation and saying, what are the opportunities available to us in the marketplace, given the uh, pressure on the real estate and energy markets? Uh, and what are the opportunities we can bring uh, to the investing public uh, uh, taking advantage of what's going on out there? So uh, still robust as far as us and our sister uh, conference folks. Um, just about everybody for the last four or five months has canceled their conferences. We're starting them up again, and, and hopefully this will be a, a one-season glitch in, in that process of having the face-to-face -face meetings. A lot of our, our, our sister organizations have gone to virtual meetings. That's kind of not us. Our you know, secret sauce, if you will, in the market is the ability for the principles of both sides of the transactions to have face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, handshake meetings and size each other up and make business decisions based on that rather than uh, a video conference or a visit from a wholesaler or you know some other marketing person. I spoke to one of our team members and he was talking about an organization that we were all familiar with. It's very event driven, physical event driven like this that has laid off essentially all their staff. I mean, they, they have nothing to do. They're not moving to the digital, uh, much like you. Uh, they're not moving to this digital idea. And I, I have some questions about whether or not that works. Our, um, our producer for this show, who is also in our business development team, Daniel Pinaranda, was working for a robotics company early on, and he was talking about some of the expos that were he was supposed to attend that went to a virtual environment, and he kind of sat there all day in the virtual room waiting for somebody to come by the booth, and it was pretty sparse. Right. Um, I, I think, and I believe, and this is the, the deal flow show, uh, I believe that most deals get done at the bar or in the lobby, right? Kind of like you were talking about, y'all sat around out sort of at a conference, but away from the, the maybe the speaking part of it, doing this process that ultimately evolved into your organization. So how do you see y'all evolving? I mean, we, we all hope and believe this is not going to go on forever, but how will y'all continue to serve your organization in the present state? As you said, some of the other organizations, uh, they get involved, you know, more than we do. We are laser focused on that selling agreement conversation. 
but other organizations have um, oh, a regulatory involvement on uh, new um, restrictions or things that come across like broker dealers or an advisor's desk. Uh, and they do, you know, educational things, uh, events for uh, registered reps on how to actually sell the product after this, the uh, uh, selling agreement has been signed. But, but that's, that's not us. And those firms have continued with uh, virtual uh, educational programs for registered reps on, you know, how to evaluate product because registered reps like broker dealers also have a regulatory requirement to do due diligence on the products that they sell. So uh, there's folks that uh, have continued uh, virtual educational and um, regulatory involvement, but, but we haven't. We looked at it and decided that look, what we are and what we have been for the last 18 years is are the face-to-face -face guys. And that's, uh, that's what we believe is necessary as part of the due diligence process, the required due diligence process for broker dealers and advisors. And, and we want to be those guys. And we don't think that's as easy to do uh, in a virtual uh, format as it is face-to-face. -face. So we have a scheduled meeting for November uh, of this year in, uh, in Nashville. We anticipate that that will, will go on because of where Nashville and Tennessee and the menu we've chosen are, and we'll continue that. So we're going to continue to be the face-to-face the -face guys. Roger, could you define for us by both the sponsor and the attendee what they would expect at a conference or the upcoming conference in Nashville? Uh, again, you know, we're, we're the face-to-face -face guys, so what sponsors can can uh, hope to achieve is they get an opportunity to be in front of decision makers from a large group of broker dealers advisors and family offices and they get to be you know in front of them folks that do alternatives or sell alternative investments and are the decision makers on what goes onto the approved products list for those companies so what they're looking for and what we believe we provide is sort of the best value in the industry for doing that. So they can come to our conference, they can make a presentation, a live presentation in front of 35 to 40 um, broker dealers and advisors that do alternatives. And uh, they can do that for a cost of a couple hundred dollars per firm. Uh, they also have access to our membership. As you can imagine, not all of our membership attend each of our conferences. Uh, so they get uh, the face-to-face -face meeting, plus they get the introduction and the contact information from our members who aren't there, who expect to hear from them. So sponsors are looking for avenues to sign selling agreements to market their, um, their uh, investments. Uh, on the other side of the transaction, the broker dealers and the advisors are there, number one, to uh, screen and search for product to fit on their approved products list. They may want to add to a certain sector. They may want to add a sector. They may want to change from some of the people that are on their current list. And what they're looking for is the opportunity to get in front of 
the, the principal decision makers, the senior management from the sponsors, not a marketing person that they might meet at a, another conference or that might drop by their office, but uh, the senior management so they can get a feel for, you know, you know, who, who is this guy? Who is the head guy? How did they get here? What has he done? What's his track record? You know, and they can size him up in his presentation. They can size him up uh, by having uh, an adult beverage with him at a happy hour or sitting with him at dinner and, you know, get the questions asked both in their presentation sessions and in the wrap up sessions that we have at the end of our conference. So they're looking for uh, a, a way to find broker dealers that do alternatives and that are frankly interested enough to fly across the country, sit in a hotel room for three days and listen to presentations from various sponsors. And, and, and then that being a tool in their due diligence process, their required due diligence process on product selection. And then there are ancillary people that we, that we invite like the analysts that write research, law firms and analysts that write research on these various products and other, what we refer to as vendors, third-party administrators and IRA companies that provide services to both the sponsor side of the transactions and the broker dealer side of the transactions. Interesting. I want to shift gears here in just a moment, but for our audience, if you're watching or listening to The Deal Flow Show right now, you can go to thedealflowshow.com and get access to more episodes as well as subscribe to be able to get access to the future episodes. So we have Roger Wadsworth with, with us from TNDDA, that's the National Due Diligence Alliance. And Roger, what I wanted to kind of shift gears is you sit in a very interesting place because you see a lot of deal flow, right? You're seeing it sort of at a bird's eye view. You're, you're there in the trenches watching things happen, but not being an issuer, not being an analyst, not being a compliance guy, you're getting to see this deal flow. kind of. of Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a very unique place. The deal flow show, while talking about specific organizations and individuals like yourself, we're also trying to capture as much quality strategies, tactics, secrets, so to speak, for people that are in the industry that they can learn from and leverage. Here's my question. The most successful deal makers that you've seen maneuver within your conferences and within your organization, what were some of the characteristics of them individually and perhaps their deal or their organization as a whole that you think made them stand out and made them more successful? Well, our members kind of ask two questions when they evaluate a, uh, a sponsor's offering. That is, can you convince me that you know what you're doing? Have you done it? And then sort of the, the, uh, the interesting backdrop to that, as I evaluate you, are you going to hurt me or my investors? And that's what they want to know. What have you done? How have you done? You know, how successful have you been? Have you been? Um, and they might ask a question about, for instance, what's your worst deal and what did you do about it? You know, that kind of question when evaluating a, a sponsor. But that's what they're looking for. They're looking for folks that are professionals in whatever sector they're in. They've done it before. They've been successful at it when they haven't been successful, what do they do about it? 
and do they communicate uh, with their investors and their um, you know marketing organizations that sell their their uh, securities you know in building companies for 30 years i've obviously had my share of times when i call them learning experiences but we know it's kind of like Ali is quoted as saying everybody has a good plan and or Tyson until they get hit in the face, right? right? Um, and so we've all been hit in the face a few times. When you talk about the kind of people that you were just describing that have success and prove it and can show a track record, but they also have navigated setbacks, um, what do you think... Uh, that are the characteristics or how do you think people are able to do this? What are the things, because a public failure like that where a deal goes bad and people have gotten hurt financially or, or otherwise, it can feel very much like a life ender, right? Like, oh man, I'll never be able to do anything again. How important is it, do you think, for people to maybe have not only some successes, but also some failures under their belt where they've found a way to navigate through that? Well, that's actually one of the questions that we focus on in our conferences. After each group of sponsor presentations, we uh, close the doors, we ask the other sponsors to leave, and we have a, a closed session with the, uh, with the members and with the analysts who write the research and uh, uh, analysts and or, and or law firms who write the research on these products. And the first question we ask in that closed session is, does anybody have a selling agreement with this group? Has anybody ever worked with them before, either in this company or another company? And what was that experience like? Would you share with us? And the questions that come out of that were, uh, uh, are they transparent? Do they communicate with their investors in good times and in bad? You know, so how do they handle adversity? You know, it's fairly easy if you're successful to handle success, uh, but adversity and challenges are the things that differentiate, I think, the people that can fall into the, anybody's right if they're successful and the, and the groups that, that handle the uh, market cycles and the ups and downs and stuff in the, in the, in the industry. So that's a big part of our discussion is, is you know, who in the room, you know, has had experience with these folks. We asked the analysts if, if they had prepared a report on this particular investment. We asked them, how were these people to work with? Were they open and forthcoming? Were they transparent in providing you information? If you had suggestions to them on, on how maybe to change an operating issue or, or something in their offering materials, uh, were, they, were they open to that? And so we have, you know, that discussion also. And then, and then a discussion in those closed sessions of the company's game plan, the company's, uh, you know, business plan, and uh, their particular current offering. And, uh, and as it relates to other folks in the market and what they've done historically. You know, uh, a, a recurring theme with, with our guests is transparency, reputation, track record. Right, we just keep hearing that over and over. Be a good person, go figure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny because you talk about learning from mistakes. One of my favorite quotes is, says that there are basically three kind of people in this world. They're either stupid, smart, or successful. 
The definition is that stupid people never learn from their own mistakes. Smart people do, but successful people learn from the mistakes of others. Right. And I tell people, just don't be stupid. <laughs> don't great. be stupid. Well, I try to learn from my mistakes, and I, I, I think I've done a fairly good job in my career. But my problem is I've learned from my old mistakes, but I still make new mistakes. Yeah. Roger, uh, we noticed that you were part of the Institutional Real Estate Editorial Board. Yes, it's uh, actually it's real. It's one of their publications, Real Asset Advisor, and it's a publication geared toward the industry, the alternative investment industry. And they have a board uh, uh, of folks that assist them in um, a, a discussion about what's going on in the industry, what regulatory changes uh, are in in process. Um, uh, what market trends in the various sectors in real asset investing uh, are, you know, are current. And uh, the um, advisory board uh, suggests uh, speakers, or not speakers, but suggests uh, contributors to the magazine. And also the advisory board members contribute themselves in various uh, types of uh, issues to get addressed by the magazine and they ask members of the board to comment on uh, on those current issues and that's distributed to i think this is still a correct number something around forty-five thousand broker dealers and advisory firms so it's it's it's, it's well distributed and it's one of the the tools in the industry that the uh, broker dealers and advisors use to stay current on on trends and issues and things that are going on. You know, to that point, I know real estate, there's an awful lot of real estate private placements out there. What other industries or what other sectors do you see coming to your events? Well, as you can imagine in the alternative investment space, uh, real estate is the largest uh, uh, portion of that, the biggest slice of the pie. And in that sector, we, uh, you know, this all sorts of wrappers, uh, real estate investment trust partnerships. Uh, we go the full range of uh, various sectors in terms of, uh, you know, retail and multifamily and residential and, and office and, you know, public storage and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then sort of the subsectors that fall under that are opportunity zones, um, uh, easement um, uh, products. So that's sort of, we cover sort of almost every type of real estate there is in a wrapper, depending on, you know, what's the best uh, uh, form for the sponsor to use of a, of a reader or partnership. Uh, the next biggest uh, category would be energy. And we go sort of all across the oil and gas business Everything from from uh, drilling to services like saltwater disposal companies, frackers, um, uh, you know, things like that. So we cover the whole range of, of, of assets in that in that industry. A small portion of what we do over the years, only it's getting larger or alternatives like ethanol and wind and, and solar, but mostly it's the uh, carbon-based uh, energy companies, both on the 
oil and the gas side. And then in addition to that, other alternatives, uh, things like uh, um, structured settlements, um, business development corporations are just lenders and or um, um, equity participants in, in development of, of companies. And then the full range of, of uh, venture capital from angel capital up through uh, investing in mature companies. So that sort of covers most of the things we see. You know, every now and then we'll get uh, uh, a money manager or a, you know a firm that uh, you know specializes in you know, uh, you know that sort of thing. But it's mostly real estate and oil and gas. Do you, in, and in that sense, do you see that that it's it's income or it's it's uh, equity plays or, or where do you see that mix? Uh, well, it's both, and it has been since our inception. There's folks that you know like the uh, fixed asset or the you know, fixed income side of the transactions, and there's those folks that like the the um, you know the equity side of the transactions. So it's it's uh, lending and investing. I have a very selfish question I want to ask. You know, Harbor City is bringing our bonds to the BD community. That was one of the main reasons that Paul joined the team here at Harbor City um, was to take his 25 years background as, a, as an investment banker, broker, dealer, and enter that market. And we're going through this whole process, exposing ourselves to organizations like you, you guys at TNDDA, um, third-party due diligence through FactRight, um, a, a platform with a managing broker-dealer now with WealthForge, um, so we're, we're building the team and building the process. And as you know, it's expensive to enter this market and it's tedious. There's a lot of moving parts. When someone is doing, let's say, an equity raise for a company that may be on a path for a public offering in 24 to 36 months, they're a rapidly growing organization. Um, but this raise that they're about to do is also a private placement in the alt space. Do you personally see deals enter the market and come to conferences like y'all's and get access to the BD community without all of those layers, meaning a third-party due diligence report, or is that a non-starter if they don't have that? Um, a managing broker-dealer, or is that can they can they build their own selling organization themselves? You see what I'm saying? Because this is like a one-time raise as opposed to Harbor City's now on our fifth issue of bonds, we're gonna be issuing our sixth for the first time to the broker-dealer community with the goal of many, many more rounds and issues versus this company that I'm talking about is a company we've privately invested in, um, myself and Kevin Harrington, and, and we've, we've, we wanna see this company grow. Harbor City's a part of helping advise them and growing the business. So I was just curious, is it possible to enter without all those layers and moving parts, or is it just that's the way it is? Uh, the answer is yes, it's possible. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, you know, our membership are not folks looking for current public deals, obviously. They're looking for deals that they can put their investors' money in. So the fact that your particular sponsor's exit strategy might be well, we want to raise a billion dollars and then we're going to go public. You know, that's, that's fine, except a lot of folks were going to go public, going to have an exit strategy of an IPO or, going, or getting listed, or 
selling to a, um, um, some sort of a, uh, other fund or competitor or whatever. But today, if you're raising money for a, you know, for a particular sponsor, you have to do the due diligence and assume what's going on today. And broker dealers want to have that, if you will, that report from a law firm that has done a, done a, a research report on the, on the company. They want to have that in their, in their file to support their due diligence efforts. Uh, they want to have come to a conference like ours where they've had a chance to meet um, the principals from the company and to have a discussion with their peers about what their peers um, think about the company. And other due diligence, like the uh, a due diligence report from the company itself with all their background material, uh, maybe having their uh, product uh, looked at and having the, the uh, broker dealer subscribe to AI Insight, which you probably are aware of, that does uh, educational uh, testing for broker dealer reps to ensure that they understand the products that they're selling. So uh, most broker dealers are looking for the, you know, sort of all those things to have in their, their quiver, if you will, uh, arrows in their quiver of the due diligence that they're required to do before they take on the, uh, the marketing of a product. That's not to say that they all have, have to have it on other products. It's, you know, Truthfully, it's, it's not a cookie cutter business. Every product is different in terms of even products that are structured the same way. You might have two REITs that are raising $100 million in the real estate business, but you look at them, you look at management, you look at the history, you look at the deal structure, you know, they really aren't cookie cutter. You know, every deal is different and every deal takes a thorough level of due diligence to, uh, uh, to uh, ensure that when they make that decision to put it on their approved products list, that they've met their regulatory requirements. So if I heard you right, then the managing broker dealer is not a necessity, but what they are looking for is that third party due diligence as an extra layer of due diligence for themselves and can simply write a, a, a selling agreement direct with the sponsor. Is that, is that what you said? Yeah, that's correct. The, the, the managing broker dealer is more for the, uh, the sponsor than it is for the broker dealer or the, in, the investors. Um, that's assuming that if a company does not have a managing broker dealer, that they have the, the staff and the capacity to process uh, uh, under the um, uh, securities laws, process the investments of individual investors. So that's important whether you have a managing broker deal or not that you get that right. But it's not, it's not necessary for a, uh, a sponsor to have a managing broker dealer in order to raise money in the IBD uh, form. We have um, currently, I suppose, we have about 15 active managing broker dealers that bring clients to TNDDA. Uh, and there's a, a lot, actually probably more than more than a majority uh, of, of folks that don't have a managing broker dealer. So a managing broker dealer just helps 
the way I like to put it when I'm approached by a sponsor and they ask that question, I say, if you have the expertise and the capability and the history and the, if you have an internal broker dealer to your company or you have folks that have, have, have been involved in, in compliance, you know, you don't need that. And the managing broker dealer is for someone who has really maybe no experience in that area and they want to go do whatever it is that they do and do successfully and have done successfully. And they let the managing broker dealer do the, uh, the compliance part of the, uh, and the marketing part of the getting out into the uh, industry, uh, you know, finding the, the, uh, the broker dealers that will sell their product and making sure that the compliance laws are adhered uh, to when that process, uh, you know, takes its course. Very good. That's actually, I whispered to Paul, that's the best answer to that question we've heard. And we've asked a lot of people. We've even talked to brokers in the industry that didn't even know what a managing broker dealer was. Uh, but, you know, no one has answered the question as articulately and, and in right. detail where it actually made sense. Thank you. And so understanding that it's more about filling the gaps or plugging the gaps where a sponsor or an issuer might not have the personnel or the background or the experience to navigate what is a very dicey industry. And I'm going to segue from that into laws and regulations. But before I do, if you're listening or watching The Deal Flow Show, you can get more episodes at thedealflowshow.com. That's the Deal Flow Show. Dot com, and you can also subscribe to future episodes. We have Roger Wadsworth with us from the National Due Diligence Alliance, uh, myself, Paul Nicolini, our co-host, and we're having a, a great discussion. So what I wanted to ask you is, where do you see right now um, and in the near future any new regulations, laws, or maybe eagerness of... Um, you know, bodies, you know, whether it's FINRA or SEC or whatever that have really changed the landscape or that might be tweaking the landscape in your opinion for the future? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and I'd like to go back to some history to, to answer that. Uh, since before we, I started uh, TNDDA, I owned a broker dealer. So, you know, for forever, Every new regulation that either FINRA or the SEC um, uh, purported to uh, want to bring to the market, uh, major ones, not not operational things or you know, but you know, major major issues uh, have been viewed by many folks in the independent broker dealer and advisory community as the end of the world. Oh my God, you know, we'll never be able to raise another dollar. We can't do business like this. Uh, they're not helping investors. All they're doing is just flexing their muscle. And there's been several major iterations of that over the over the years. And they go back and forth from, well, you know, broker dealers are transactional and they charge a fee to sell a product to an investor. That's really not the way to go. You really ought to be an advisor who looks at the investor's total picture. And you don't charge on a transaction, you just charge a fee for managing your money. And, um, you know, 
they start pushing that transaction. And about the time that they get through that, they go back and they go, well, you know, we've been looking at this advisory thing and we see that, you know, a lot of advisors are, are managing types of investments that don't take much advice and, and you're really charging more uh, of a fee of a cost to an investor by being an advisor than you would be by selling them an individual uh, uh, investment on, on for a for a, uh, a, a transactional fee, and so just about the time you think that uh, you know you figured it out, and they say, well, now you have to do an evaluation of if you did it both ways, how would you do it, and what would be the best thing for the investor. So, um, you know, I think generally the the uh, industry is supportive of regulation that makes sense, is supportive of things that protect investors, because as you can imagine, uh, the broker dealers and advisors want to be protected. You know, they don't want to, you know, offer something to the, to the public or to their investors that is offered by uh, someone who's not meeting the requirements or someone that has a historical issue that where they shouldn't be offering or that sort of thing. So, you know, the broker dealers and advisors are as large a proponent as, as the investors are of wanting to make sure that investors uh, are treated fairly, transparently, uh, not that investments are ever guaranteed, but that there's full disclosure on what the investments are, what the risk factors are, and, and what people should expect when they go into an investment. So. Um, there are folks that think that a lot of times the regulators are just making arbitrary rules so that they can come back later and say, well, you really didn't do anything wrong except you just broke our rule. So we're going to fine you or, you know, or suspend you or do something for that because you broke our rule. And you, and you think, well, wait a minute, how, how did that particular rule apply to protecting investors? Um, so you know, there, there's always a little bit of that. And anybody that's regulated, I think, probably has a has a one eye on the regulators at all time, hoping that they always do things right. Can you expound on AI Insight and how that? It is not mandatory, but a lot of broker dealers like it. And to to explain just a second on what it is, the sort of the major service that AI Insight offers is a sponsor will come to them and say, "We're offering a hundred million dollar fund." Uh, to purchase uh, existing uh, real estate in the uh, office market. And uh, we're going to be offering this to broker dealers and advisors. And one of the requirements for broker dealers and advisors and their underlying salespeople, either registered rep or advisors, is to do, is to do due diligence and to, and to understand the product before they sell it. So what AI Insight does is they develop for the sponsor a test, a written test that tests people's understanding and knowledge of the offering materials, the company's business plan and its history. And broker dealers will, uh, will contract with them to make these tests available to their registered reps or their advisors. And the gamut runs from you either have to score a hundred percent on this test before we will allow you to sell this product 
or you have to score a very high number or you have to take it again. But you have to prove to us and the regulators that you understand what it is you're selling instead of just getting an offering, piece of offering material and say, you know, hey, this is a uh, this is a real estate company that's been around a long time. They're in the office market. It's a really good deal. You ought to buy it. And the person asks the question and they go, well, yeah, I think that's right. You know, the, the uh, registered reps and advisors have to understand not only the product and the industry, but the structure of the investment uh, before uh, broker dealers should and do allow them to uh, to sell the investments. It's not required from broker dealers, but they look at it as when we enter into an agreement to sell a product, we want to have a third party report. We want to have gone to a, for instance, a TNDDA meeting. We want to have had, we want our people to have taken a test to prove that they understand the product. So it's just another, uh, another piece of the due diligence process that ensures that before an investor writes a check that the due diligence has been done by the, um, the broker dealer, the registered rep or the advisor, uh, um, and it puts an extra level of safety in the, in the system. I'm going to ask you a couple of more questions before we get to that. This is the deal flow show. I'm JP Maroney, your host, along with my co-host for this episode, Paul Nicolini here both from Harbor city. And we've got Roger Wadsworth with us from TNDDA. That's the national due diligence Alliance. You talked about rule breakers. I want to talk about deal breakers. So one of the things that we're doing is taking some of this content and turning it into a book called Deal Makers, Deal Breakers. What has it been? Let's go back even when you had the broker dealer in the early days, where you're at now, maybe th what your members see. What are some of the deal breakers, the things that make a deal a non-starter for you? Well, we've been doing this for 18 years and I don't know the answer to that question because the answer is unique to each person at a broker deal or advisor who's the guy that signs on the line and says, yes, we will put this on our approved products list and we will make it available to our investors. So uh, there's some obvious things. If, uh, if in the uh, due diligence process, you determine that uh, a sponsor or its uh, management has uh, regulatory issues in their history that not necessarily an absolute deal killer, but they can't be explained, or they have a regulatory issue uh, or a, a legal issue, uh, they've been barred from the industry or barred for a period of time or found guilty of a securities crime or that sort of thing. Uh, but beyond that, it, it almost gets down to the preference of the broker dealer. Some broker dealers, for instance, will, you know, will not look at, at uh, multifamily real estate. Don't like it, won't do it. Great industry, a lot of people made a lot of money. I don't understand it, don't wanna understand it, I'll never understand it, I just won't do it. And for that particular firm, you know, it limits uh, the types of investments that can go, can go to investors, but you know, it's the firm's option and they can, you know, they can do that. Or they, they can say, well, we won't do any, um, we won't do any drilling funds, just, you know, too much risk for us, or we won't do, uh, uh, we won't do uh, note deals that are, for instance, uh, uh, a sponsor will say, well, I'm not raising money for a fund. 
I'm raising money in various notes to operate my business. And some firms just go, we want our dollars to go in the ground. Uh, we don't want it to go to operate the, 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 the sponsor. And the other folks are, are happy with that. So it's, it's really gets down to, you know, once you get past the absolute legalities, you know, things and the, and the, the obvious problems with regulators or, or, um, or law, uh, legal folks, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, then it, 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 the things that will disqualify for a particular firm are, you know, are, are different from one firm to the other. Roger, can you share with us um, something that the investment community does not know about you? Does not know about me. I know that's kind of a loaded question, but <laughs> do the best you can. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, some people do, a lot of people don't. I, I'm, I'm sort of a car guy and uh, I have uh, taken several um, high performance driving schools I participate in, in uh, uh, the marketing side, the marketing and sales side of it, the, uh, uh, the uh, auctions like Barrett Jackson and Mecham and those sort of things. Uh, I uh, don't race competitively, but I have had my own cars on the track and, and had instruction on how to do that. So I've gone from, uh, from NASCAR to open wheel to, you know, long tracks to short tracks to, um, you know, all kind of things and, and really, really enjoy it. So what's your favorite baby right now in your, in your arsenal? Well, actually, uh, I've sort of retired from my own personal arsenal uh, a couple of years ago. I'm, uh, I'm uh, 73 years old and a few years ago I looked at my garage and I had uh, two high performance cars and four motorcycles. And the first thing I noticed is I was spending a lot of my time charging the motorcycles, charging the cars with triple chargers, uh, having inspections done, having license renewed, having service done. And I looked at a couple of them and I thought, well, gee, I, in the last year, I put 50 miles on that particular vehicle. And in, in being in my early 70s at the time, I decided you know what, this is, uh, I'll do it maybe with other people and other people's cars, but in terms of my own personal cars, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's time to sort of uh, hang up my, my driving shoes and, and uh, do things a little, uh, a little less potentially dangerous. Gotcha. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you off that easy. Your favorite car you've ever owned? Favorite car I've ever owned? Actually, it was a Mercedes C65 that was modified by a company called Rentec. And it's a, it's a, you know, V8. Mine was 581 horsepower. Very nice car to drive. Uh, learned to drive it particularly at the uh, AMG Mercedes uh, High Performance Driving School out in, in uh, California at Laguna Seca, and that was probably my favorite car. I've had more sporty, that was a four-door sedan. I had more sporty cars, but in terms of driving and the driving experience and the power and the handling, that was probably my favorite car. Before we go, 
tell us about any people. Our audience is always listening and trying to think of, you know, how do they give back to our guests who have given to us? We're obviously, we have a Rolodex, a network. Um, what kind of people or organizations would you like to be connected with or would you like to reach out to you that will help y'all and y'all's organization to continue to grow and be relevant in the industry? Well, yeah, just an extension of the folks, the types of folks we already deal with. We uh, are always interested in new uh, sponsors, uh, new to the IBD industry. As you can imagine, well, beginning back in 2008 and 2009, we had a lot of sponsors that came to us, especially in the real estate business, that said, look, we've been doing whatever we've been you know, doing. We've been doing uh, retail real estate development for you know for 40 years and what we would do is we'd pick up the phone and we'd dial uh, our favorite uh, uh, investors in new york and, and, and they give us a hundred million dollars and we go do it except we did that last week and we dialed lehman brothers and the answer was that number's been disconnected so a lot of folks that have not been in this industry before in the IBD portion of the industry uh, have have floated toward us in the last uh, six or seven years. Uh, there's always been the, uh, the smaller sponsors who um, you know can't attract institutional money. They're doing things at a, at a level that wouldn't interest an institutional investor, but it would interest a broker dealer who's looking for a group of products to offer to their, to their uh, investors. Uh, um, so those are the kinds of folks we'd like to see. We'd like to see the folks that are you know, currently raising money in the IBD network and, uh, and folks that are, are just getting into it. On the uh, broker-dealer side, we're interested in, in folks that uh, are doing alternatives now or are looking at alternatives to add it to their, to their product mix and are looking for a way to screen for those products and, uh, and um, you know, add those products to their approved, approved products list. Um, we pretty well have the, the, uh, the field covered on the analysts that write research in our sector of the market. Of course, there's law firms that will write stuff on, on billion dollar public entities, but on, on the, uh, uh, IBD network and the folks that we work with now and the size of the deals we work with, the, uh, the folks that come to our meetings, the uh, law firms and analysts, there's four or five of them that cover um, just about probably 85% of those products that aren't the, the several billion dollar funds. And we're also doing okay on the vendors, the folks that provide services like AI Insight or other um, other conferences or folks that are third-party uh, administrators or IRA companies that provide services to both sides. We've got that covered. So basically, we're always interested in improving the size and the quality of both sides of our transaction, which is the, you know, the, the alternative product sold through, sold through a broker dealer or investment advisor or family office. Excellent. You know, I was talking to Daniel uh, a couple of days ago and I said, one of the greatest places you can be in business is to become a connector. Get yourself in the middle and start connecting people 
and it'll serve you well for the rest of your life. And you all have built, obviously, an entire organization, and you've built a career out of it. And uh, kudos to you with that. What is the best place or way for people to get in touch with you or the organization? You're welcome to give whichever emails, phone, or websites that are most relevant. Well, actually, the easiest way is to go to our website at www.tndda.com. And uh, we hope that everything you would need to know is up on that website. We, we kind of joke with folks. We say, if we get asked a question twice, we put the answer on the website. Uh, but on the website, you will find a list of our membership. You'll find a sample agenda for how we run our, uh, our conferences. Uh, you'll find the frequently asked questions section that addresses uh, all sides of the transaction, addresses analysts, it addresses the broker-dealer side, it addresses the sponsor side on, you know, why our policies are what we are, why we do what we do, why we don't do what we don't allow. And, um, um, you know, all that information is up there with uh, applications for uh, registration um, and, uh discussions about the cost to the sponsor to put on the, uh, the presentation they do to our membership and that sort of thing. So go to the website. Uh, my my uh, contact information is on there. So is the contact information for our events manager, Terry Odom. That information is on there. And you can contact us by email, either through the website or separately or by phone. And uh, you know, we're happy to, happy to answer any question at any time. And, and back to your comment of a few minutes ago, um, there's, there's nothing really that unique about what we do. What we do is we do get both sides together. So uh, the, the, the trick is inviting the right people. You know, anybody can go out and contract for a hotel for 250 rooms for next year and, and contract for, you know, $50,000 worth of food and beverage and, and all that. But if nobody shows up, then it's just Terry and I eating $25,000 worth of food. So what we uh, focus on is providing value to both sides so that when folks, even as I, I, I think I said earlier, uh, we've been around for 18 years and there's still people that don't know we exist. A lot of people do. So when people find us, we want to be able to, when we tell the story that we've talked about this morning, we want them to look and say, you know what, that's exactly what I need on you know, both sides of the transaction and, uh, and make it clear enough to them that we've done this for 18 years, 52 conferences, as of today, 1,008 sponsor presentations. And what they come and they will get what they expect to get is the ability to have that selling agreement conversation with the other side of the transaction that they're looking to complete. I love it. This is the Deal Flow Show, and this is where deals get done. And obviously, TNDDA's conference is where deals get done, and people are right able to look, look each other right in the wide of the eye. And, and I love the idea of being able to discuss between your peers what you're looking for, if you've had the exposure. And Harbor City's looking forward to it. We, we obviously are committed to being at TNDDA in Nashville in November and eager to meet you and your team and your members face-to-face -face as well. Once again, I'm J.P. Maroney. This is my co-host, Paul Nicolini. Again, on behalf of our guest, Roger Wadsworth with TNDDA. If you are listening to this episode or watching it, you can get more episodes 
and subscribe to future episodes at thedealflowshow.com. We'll see you in another episode very, very soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.